HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by Sake Man, a group of sake superheroes bringing sake to the world. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We've talked about non-dairy butter and upcycled flour on this show. We know they're great tech products that are good for the planet, but are they good for baking too? Find out on this episode of Tech Bites. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I think every single one of them is tuning in to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is taking some great, innovative food tech products and putting them to the test. We have with us today, Chris Broberg, who is a... I'm going to call him a master pastry chef. He's not going to like that because that's not actually a (laughs) demarcation. But he is one of the most technical. He's very good with the classics. And he's worked in some of the top restaurants in New York City for many, many years and knows most of all the chefs. So he's really that extra, extra level. He's also currently pastry chef at Facebook, Instagram, flagship in New York City, which is kind of perfect because that that tags nicely to our food tech space. So Chris, I want to thank you for coming out today. Thank to you so much. Brooklyn. We've been planning this episode for a long time, so I'm really that happy to have him here. So we're going to start the episode like we always do. Do you have an app that you use that you like right now? <laughs> and I'm going to say that I'm going to say that you don't have to say Facebook and Instagram because technically I ask people not to talk about apps that they work at or work with or own. No, I started with Instagram before I got the job. It was just coincidental. <laughs> so it's a nice it's a nice um, merger of things. So. Uh, and Instagram, I think, has only gotten better for that. You know, it was uh, initially thought, oh, here's my meal in front of me. You can share it with me. But there's so much more to it now. So, mm-hmm. 
So is that the app that you like the most yeah. right now? Yes, at the moment, yes. Okay. It's, the, it's the one that I, I, I'm looking at all the time. Okay, well, and if you want to take a look at Chris's Instagram while we're on the show, he is at C.W. Broberg, B-R-O-B-E-R-G. So we also have a new engineer today. We have Jeet Paul at Mission Control in the back. How are you today, Jeet? I'm good. How are you, Jennifer? Good. Nice to have you on the show team. Thank you. Do you have an app for us today that you like? Yeah, I was uh, quickly screaming through which app I would choose, and I'm going with this app called Expense Manager. Oh, you know, that is very popular, Expense. Yep. Not Expense Manager specifically, but expense and finance tracking mm -hmm. things because people are thinking about tax time. Exactly. And it's, it really helps if you're a freelancer like myself, so you kind of have to calculate your business expenses. It's just perfect for writing it down on the go. So explain to us a little bit more what the app does. Yeah, sure. So basically, um, you can create various subdivisions. So like I have a band, I'm a sound engineer, I do music production, and I also teach. So I can divide all my different expenses based on um, where I'm spending them. So for example, today, when I, came, when I come to Heritage Radio Network, uh, I spend about $11 in transport and maybe $6 uh, for food and I can write that down as a business expense so when it comes time for tax year uh, just note them down and then it's really cool because you know you can get pie charts and I like graphs and charts so it's really easy to uh, budget things out and make sure you're not overspending and or underspending for that matter oh okay so tell us the name of the app again expense manager I don't know the developers name um, but well, it's a little blue icon if that helps at all. <laughs> <laughs> and are you using it on an iPhone or an Android? Android. Android. And do we presume that it's available also? I would think so. It's pretty popular. Is it a free app? Yeah. Fantastic. We love free apps. <laughs> so it sounds like, though, given that you have five jobs, you probably could use <laughs> one of the calendar organizers also. Oh, yeah? Which, do you have one that you recommend? <laughs> we can maybe talk about it after the show. Okay. <laughs> Time management of to go course. along with your financial <laughs> management. You got a lot going on, Jeet. Thank you. <laughs> so Chris is here today, as I said at the top of the show, to put some of these food tech products to the test. We like to do that here. Back last year in 2018, we had a couple of interesting founders on. We had episode 151, which was titled Millennial CEOs Changing the World. And we had two founder CEO CFO on from a company called Fora Foods. We had Aidan Altman, who's the CEO, and Andrew McClure, who's the CFO. And Fora Foods, F-O-R-A-F-O-O-D-S.com, they, their first product is a product called Faba Butter, and it is a plant-based butter. It's absolutely all vegetable. There is no dairy or animal in it at all. They use aquafaba, which is a waste product from hummus manufacturers. It's the water, uh, it's the chickpea water. It also has some seasoning, salt, and some other plant fats, like coconut fat, I think is one of that's the, the main principal one, yes. ones. So that's an interesting idea. Their website is great, and it's a lot of fun. Great design, great uh, fun things like butter is toast, mm -hmm. talking about animal butter. But they also say 
It's a great substitute. So say three-star Michelin chefs, it's just as good as butter. And that's a pretty bold statement to make. So I was thinking to myself, you know, we should have a pastry chef who is very well versed in the French butter and the fats and the classic baking, sort of put it through its paces and see how it works. So we had Chris, we had the uh, four foods guys send Chris some faba butter. Along with, we had on episode 153, Upcycling Food Waste with Rise, we had Bertha Jimenez, who is a PhD and the founder of Rise Products, which is a company that is upcycling food waste. And that basically means you take uh, food product from manufacturing that is left over that typically would be thrown away. And in this case, they take it and they transform it through a patent pending process and they turn it into a viable food item. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, about 1.3 billion tons of food is wasted every year. So both of these products are taking things from the manufacturing process that would generally be thrown out. So that's a great thing also. But, you know, baking and flours, you typically need them to have some kind of gluten, action, energy, protein in them to make them viable for baking and cooking. So that seemed like another good opportunity for Chris. So we had him get a package of the rise flour also. So mm-hmm. he's here today to talk to us about his baking results and what he made and how the upcycled flour and the non-dairy butter compare to their originals. Well, the upcycled flours are good in that you can develop a depth of flavor without time expenditure. Oh, that's so an interesting these, point. These are already, they've grown in their life and their flavor mm-hmm. in their use. So you have this aging process going on. Oh, that's so, an interesting thing. So you they have a, a mature... A maturity that you can get instantly. You know, and sometimes that word is bad, but I thought this product is good in that it gives you a flavor... And as, as a time saver, but it's also using the product again mm-hmm. rather than it ending up in mm-hmm. food waste. So tell us what you decided to make with these products. Well, first of all, I used the um, the flour in their recipe, and it did add a depth of flavor. The brownie to, recipe. To the brownie, yes. And that was very nice. They have a brownie recipe on the packaging, and, and they also sell brownies. Uh, I was... Uh, more focused on the butters and or excuse me the use of butter so i did two very simple recipes a sable breton which is basically a butter sugar cookie and a blitz puff pastry um the samples i would have preferred a larger sample to do a full batch of puff pastry just it's yes i cook at home but i'm used to larger amounts when I'm working with. So I did a blitz puff pastry. We're using the basic proportions, but rather than folding a brick or a pat of butter into your pat of dough, you shred the, the uh, fat into it and then you start layering it. Americans might be more familiar with it in making flaky biscuits. 
things like that, where you actually fold the dough back in on itself. Once you have the fat in chunks. Yes. Versus a traditional puff pastry where Mm -hmm. you sort of flatten the butter into a square and make a layer of butter and then fold that Mm -hmm. with the dough. Yes. So uh, when you do a blitz puff pastry or something like that, you're actually layering it, but not in that flat layer that ends up with the leaves you end up with flakes, but without the leaves. So why did you pick those? Well, let's let's go through the Sable Breton, which is ba- the classic French shortbread cookie. And the recipe really, for the texture, really, it's a classic for using a lot of butter. Yes. So um, when using different fats, an issue is always the melting point. Now, this is mainly coconut fat. And you can buy coconut fat straight. Uh, Coconut fat is actually extremely popular right now. Yes, exactly. Not just to eat, but to put on you, to put in you. Exactly. In your coffee, in your baking. If anybody's on a keto or whole foods or paleo diet, coconut is one of your primary sources of sustenance. Yes. The problem with, or at least my problem coming from a animal fat background for baking. For baking. Well, no, for yeah. all cooking, really. Okay, for all cooking. Um, um, I mentioned recently to you that it was a couple Christmases ago, I had all the fats in my refrigerator and in a now picture tell, on Instagram. If, yeah, explain to people what all the fats means. <laughs> How many different kinds of fats did you have in your refrigerator cooking for the holidays? Well, I had goose fat. I had duck fat. I had uh, rendered pork fat. I had bacon fat. I had... Uh, two types of butter, and I had olive oil. Okay, so that's a good seven types of fat. Yeah, and they all have different You are maybe uh, missing ghee, coconut yes. oil. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I had coconut oil in the kitchen, but that's I wasn't using good, at though. the time. Maybe some schmaltz. Uh, I did have some... Oh, I did have chicken fat. I did have um, vegetable oils as well, and... They're all used in different ways in different cultures for different purposes. And the faba butter is wonderful in that it has a higher smoking point than butter. It has a higher smoking point than olive oil. So what does smoking point mean, just in case people don't know exactly? That's where the uh, fat starts to break down. It actually smokes. I mean, that's the visible thing. And when you're frying something, you want a higher temperature uh, of the oil when you introduce something uh, with water into it in that the water evaporates quicker and whatever's less left, whether it's the starch or the the meat or whatever, actually crisps faster and the oil doesn't enter the product that you're frying. So if you fry with olive oil, the problem is that you can end up with things that are more chewy or gooey on the outside than crisp. Because... Olive oil has a lower smoke point. Exactly, exactly. Grapeseed oil is a wonderful one. Is that the highest? What has what, well, what commercially, fat has but it's the very, highest it's, smoke point? I'm not sure, but grapeseed oil is the one that's used in kitchens. The only problem with that is is its expense. Mm-hmm. So, um, but for me, seeing that it was based on coconut oil, my past with coconut oil was knowing that in its manufacturing, it can undergo a process called fractionization where 
the fats are removed at different temperatures as it's purified. So you can have coconut oil that will melt below body temperatures used in the candy. I don't know if people are familiar with it. It's called uh, Ice Cube. It's sold in gas stations and delis. It's uh, wrapped in silver foil with a blue logo. It's uh, smaller than Ice Cube. But the thing is, when you put it in your mouth, it's uh, cocoa mass and coconut oil. And cocoa butter has a higher than body temperature melting point. Coconut oil, the one used here, is lower than body temperature. So you put it in your mouth and it melts and it feels cool as it melts because it's lower than body temperature when it's melting. Um, that coconut oil would be a problem for use in baking or frying because it would melt um, quicker than starches would be setting in whatever you're making. So you want something that would melt a little bit higher. Now, a problem with pure coconut fat that melts at a higher temperature it doesn't have the flavor and it doesn't have the um, elastability when you're working it and that's why the introduction of the of the uh, chickpea water chickpea water to this as an emulsifier was very very nice in that it works like butter so talk a little bit about why you need that elasticity and what exactly you mean by elasticity in a, in a butter and a fat? Well, um, again, uh, you want something that's going to, when you're cr creaming a hard fat. So if you are making cookies, exactly. as you were. Sable Breton, you if you're creaming You get your it, butter to room temperature and you get out your mixer and you cream it with sugar. Or your faba butter. Or your faba butter. It, it actually has a nice temperature, I mean, excuse me, a nice texture at room temperature, it creams, it will incorporate air, it will accept the f uh, sugar into it. The addition of some moisture in this uh, fat compared to a pure coconut fat allows the sugar crystals to melt a little bit. So they're not just these hard crystals within that. So um, you're accepting the air into it and you're allowing a true creaming to happen. Um, so is it kind of replicating the two components of what we have in regular dairy butter? When you clarify butter to make ghee or mm -hmm. to, you know, clarify it for a recipe like a hollandaise or something, you would melt it and at a low temperature just mm -hmm. so that it melts gently. And then you would have the, the protein solids, which would mm -hmm. float to the top and drift to the bottom. And you would mm -hmm. skim those off and strain them out. And then what you're left with with clarified butter is basically just the fat. So butter in let's in very broad terms is the fat part, which would be the ghee and the clarified mm -hmm. butter. And then all of your protein solids. So by using and water and water. And water. So by using the chickpea water, the faba water, is that sort of replicating the water and the protein component? Yes. And then we have the coconut, which is replicating the fat component. Mm -hmm. So elementally, and they've put yes. two and two together. And rather than many commercial margarines at the time, they're not using a soy as the emulsifier. Mm -hmm. So using the chickpea water as an emulsifier. Again, they're up using a, up using a product that would be waste now. Mm -hmm. They're not investing further energy in a different 
product. Product to enter into it. Thomas is very popular now. So, so. <laughs> exactly. Endless supply. It's worldwide also. So that's good. And the faba water it makes great meringues as it is. So it's a wonderful emulsifier. Faba butter makes faba water makes yeah. great meringues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put, let's put that to the side. Yeah, let's ma- put that to the side because it it the protein stretches and uh, you know it will hold air. So that's what you need it to do. Um, so I was interested when I read the label and thought, well, this is going to be interesting depending upon the fat used in here. But the fat uh, was great because out of the refrigerator, it was firm enough, unlike other vegetable oils, that I could um, grate it fine to do the Blitz puff pastry with. And that's something you're seeing a little bit more of. I learned from my mother-in-law ages ago, rather than trying to cut it with a knife or a bench scraper, um, she actually would freeze her butter and then use a box grater to grate it very fine. And wow. you can mix it into a flour before adding your moisture. That's a great it's that's it's, a great it's great the fastest, tip. fastest thing. If you, if you use a microplane, then all of a sudden you become a that's molecular a, baker. Oh yeah, but that's a little bit too small because you end up fancy. Well they have the big ones now. Microplane <laughs> yeah. has the whole line. Yes. We have the microplane box grater yeah, at home. Uh, that is wonderful. You use the coarse side on that mm-hmm. or uh Oxo, this, the coarse side. As That's you would, a great tip. And um, you just grate it into your starches, whatever you're using, gluten or gluten-free starches, and toss them, and suddenly it's all ready to go to add your liquid. It's so you very, keep very saying fast. starches. When you say starches, do you mean flour? Well, I mean wheat flour, or I'm using non-wheat flours as well. Uh, so, but... With all these starches, these carbohydrates, when you're mixing them with the fat and the liquids, you can mix them in different ways. You can mix the same ingredients. You can get a batter that you can drop into oil and make a donut. You can uh, mix them and with different proportions and get a cake. You can mix them in different proportions and uh, get a dough. So, But in all of them, the fat is being used in different ways to help cook the starches add flavor to it and you know most of the time it's separating the starches so you don't end up with the dough so how did the sable breton come out well first how did the dough how was the dough while you were making it it was wonderful and walk through the process just very briefly of how you make a sable dough just in case listeners don't know it's creaming the fat in this case the faba butter and then adding the sugar into that, the flavoring is usually vanilla, but you can add citrus zests, etc. And then the starches. Some people will put some egg in there, but that's not needed for a sugar dough. Um, and then you form your dough into a log. The problem with some fats when you do this log, uh, the reason you're doing a log is you want to coat the outside of the log with sugar crystals. So when it bakes, you get an extra crust of sugar on the outside. You slice that, etc. Um, you make the roll, you put mm. it into the fridge, you get mm. let it get a little hard, mm. you take it out, you egg wash it, you roll it in the coarse sugar, and then you yeah. slice it and you put the slices on the oh, flat cookie sheet. On the cookie sheet and f- cook it. Uh, oh my God, so- I want a cookie now. <laughs> and there's some beautiful ones being done now using tart rings. I think Dory Greenspan has really popularized that, so everything's exactly the same size and very perfect. Uh, Philippe Conticini did that as well. And they're all even thicknesses and they're wonderful. Um, It worked very, very, very well. Could you tell it was going to work while you were making the dough? Yes. Yes. Uh, I I didn't get to say that. Sometimes with different fats, when you're rolling a log, your log won't form. 
um, too high a fat. Um, there was popularization of European style fat butters, you know, that were 82% fat, etc. French it, butter is very popular right now. The I flavored French butters, the cultured the, ones. So the cultured ones. Yeah. So um, the problem with that, if you were using an American recipe, there's not enough moisture in that. And your dough would be too high percentage of fat without enough moisture to help emulsify the starches into the fat. American recipe for the sable or American recipe yeah, exact, for, for a sugar, for for a sugar, sugar dough, okay. for a sugar cookie. So, I mean, there was frustrations, I think, in the late 90s when these higher fat content butters were being popularized in the United States and pie crusts weren't working, cakes weren't working, cookies weren't working. And all it really took was to add a little bit of water to your mix and suddenly everything would be emulsified and brought back together again. Baking is so scientific. It's so scientific in terms of the chemical properties mm -hmm. of the ingredients, how they interact together, how you, that each stage of the recipe, the temperature of the room, the temperature of your hands. I'm sure most people, when they are baking or making a recipe, they don't really think so much about what kind of butter they have in their refrigerator. Most people buy butter. Or what temperature it is as well. You know, so they'll pull it out from the refrigerator and told, oh, cream the butter and add the sugar, etc. And even if it says room temperature, they might ignore that. Or their kitchen might be very hot in the summer. So I, some place I saw was just trying to standardize that, saying that your butter should be between 68 and 72 degrees, the quote-unquote old standard room temperature. And it does make a difference. Uh, you put cold butter, you, you cut it into small cubes, you put it on your mixer, and you beat the blank out of it, and you think that it's soft and it's fine. But then you add cold eggs to it later, making a cake batter, and you see the fat curdle back out, and you say, oh, I'll just beat it some more, and it'll be fine. It won't. I mean, your cake or your cookie dough will end up with these pockets of fat in it that melt out, leave a hole, and cooked around the edge. And you, I've seen cookies that will have rings of fat around, around them. You haven't kept that all of the wonderful properties of the fat within what you're cooking. So, yes, th th there are things that used to be second-hand in bakeries. You know, 30-pound block. And it's funny, I just second said that. Second nature. Yeah, second nature. I, I just said that, and I don't know why it was 30 pounds. Someone will have to call and tell you why. <laughs> uh, but your brick of butter would come in. It would go into the kitchen and be used for the cooking and then go down to the bake shop. And by the time what was left went to the bake shop, it was of a soft texture to be used in baking. So, so did the faba butter suffer at all from being room temperature? Oftentimes these things sort of lose their quality and they no, rely uh, on the cold to keep them together. No, that, that was the only noticeable difference, and I didn't say that. When it was cold out of the fridge, it was very hard. It was very hard, which I liked when I did the Blitz pa uh, pastry because I could grate it, and it didn't soften on the grater. It stayed firm. Um but at room temperature, it was the consistency of another um, plant American fat butter? or American butter. Yes. No. Not high-fat European butter. 
No, it was a little bit more like European butters, to tell you the truth. Okay. It wasn't as soft. I, you know, I won't mention other names of other margarines, but some of them at room temperature are very soft. And you... S- it's not like the moisture is coming out, but you see a... It's almost like there is a separation between what's in the fat and the fat. So it spread well. Okay. Um, I'd put it on some toast, too. <laughs> uh, it spread well. Did it taste like butter? It tastes different. It doesn't taste bad. It doesn't taste like butter, but only butter will taste like butter, so I'm never going to say that. That's an excellent point, Chris. Only butter will taste <laughs> like butter. <laughs> and on that note, we are going to take a quick break to find out who is underwriting this episode. Did you know Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? And we keep the lights on and the mics hot entirely out of the generosity of our underwriters, grants, and members who are oftentimes listeners like you. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Sake Man. What is Sake Man? Sake Man are judo athletes wearing Lucha Libre inspired masks that act as sake heroes. This team of athletes moonlight as sake educational professionals spreading sake to the world. Learn more about their mission and their favorite sakes at saketotheworld.com. That's saketotheworld.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liut, and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we look at the intersection of food and technology. Do you have a great app or piece of food tech that you love? Are you a founder and you want to come on and share your story with us and the world? Get in touch with us. We are very interactive. You can reach out at techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org for email. We are on social media at techbyteshrn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We would love to hear from you because we do a show every week, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that is lots of airtime to fill. Today we are talking with pastry chef Chris Broberg, who was really nice enough to take some samples of the upcycling flour product from Rise and the non-dairy all-plant faba butter from Fora Foods and bake with them and see how they compare to their originals that they are new substitutes for. And Chris and I had a, had several great conversations leading up to this show. Chris and I had several great long conversations <laughs> because we're both talkers, so i got to keep my eye on the clock. (laughs) He made a very, very good point, and he was uh, touching on it a bit before we went into the break, and that was these products are interesting and new, and they work in traditional baking if you are looking just for a straight swap-in, swap-out, because maybe you can't have butter or you're on a particular diet or you're allergic or whatever the case may be. But they aren't going to be the original thing. And different doesn't mean bad. It just means different. 
Do you think, Chris, that there's an instance where you would be specifically wanting the texture or the flavor profile of these two different products? Because you, the, in your craft, you are so specific in your knowledge and when you're baking, you know just what result you want. And so you can sometimes go after things very specifically to achieve that result. Um. Yes, but if you're dealing with a wider audience as I am at work now, and you have people with different needs, whether it's dietary restrictions or dietary desires, and rather than have a different menu of items that puts someone out and off, why not just have one item that everyone can have? So That's an interesting idea. For uh, my ice cream cones presently are vegan and dairy-free. And the smell of them in the office space makes everyone drool every morning. What are the current flavors you're offering? Well, I'm just talking about just the cone, which is the one oh, flavor. Oh, the physical cone. The, the physical cone oh. is gluten and dairy-free. And it's a waffle cone. Uh, we make them into bowls as well. There's a little uh, anise seed in there. Classic. Um, and because of that, you don't need the flavor of butter. That is not a sable, which is presenting the butter flavor. Um, so no one notices that it's gluten-free, dairy-free. People will turn up their nose, oh, just give me the gluten, and then they'll have it, and it's delicious. So why not? Why not? Why not do that that's available to a larger audience why not do that then keep some people out um, so I'm not going to do a butter flavor without butter and present it as butter I would never do that uh, but that's, in this that's sense, sort of a losing proposition also ex I exactly think. exactly so, but if you can do a croissant that will flake well and have a better flavor than previous margarines why not? And that's the melting temperature of the fats, too. Uh, again, the processing of the fats or using another fat, you don't want to end up with that greasy f feel in your mouth because the fat isn't melting at your body temperature. That's the second or third time you've used the word margarine. Yes. Which is a point worth making, I think. Margarine is non-dairy butter, but this is called non-dairy butter, and it's definitely yeah. a different branding well, piece, because, isn't no, it? No, because margarine originally was other animal fats as well. It was... Um, it was um, other animal fats, but not... Beef fat. Dairy. Oh, yeah. also beef fat. Yeah, so it was, it was a, way, a, a previous way of upcycling fats or pork fat and things like that. I don't think pork fat was ever used commercially, but it was plant fats as well. So, um, and then the one plant-based fat that was noticeable for the many years was one, I'm not going to mention its name, but everyone knows what I'm talking about. And that had an interesting history in that it was the reuse of fats that were intended for candle mat manufacturing and candle candles went out 
And suddenly we had these producers with all this fat on hand and they repurposed it as food. But again, this was the... Um, what period in time are we talking about Turn right of now? the 19th to the 20th century. Um, but it's the melting point of the fat in your mouth that made a difference. And that was also a pure fat because it was intended for frying as well. This is a fat that's intended for eating and cooking. So they've added the emulsifiers, the plant-based emulsifiers, non-soy, and they've added the moisture back into it. So you have that balance of items in it. And it works very well. It's very interesting because it actually probably does fit a margarine description, but I do think in terms People of People don't the, like the word. So. They do not like the word yeah. margarine. So yeah. in terms of branding or philosophy or what a company like Four Foods is trying to achieve, plant-based butter is probably a better thing to exactly. say than margarine. Yes. I, I was only comparing it to margarine. You're, you're absolutely n- correct, Margarine in the, in, the negative, in the negative, trying to... It's still Leave an that in the back. In it's the, an interesting in point, I think. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about the flour. We hear so much from bakers and in baking about flour being something that's alive and the gluten and it you know, has energy and there's so much power in freshly ground flours. And as it ages, it loses its, you know, some of its powers. So this is a grain, as you said, that is mature and has mm. already been used and had most of everything taken out of it. Well, that's not true. There's still quite a bit left. Um, and when I first looked at it, I was thinking, well, there's nothing. Well, one of my favorite quotes, Marie Antoinette, there's nothing new except what has been forgotten. Um, there's there's a- nothing new except for what has been forgotten. Yes. Okay. That's great. Uh my wonderful late mother-in-law, uh, Muriel Kolchatsky, she would never throw away a piece of bread. It was Eastern European. She'd save it, and she would grate it to make her own breadcrumbs. She would put that back into things as well, so nothing was ever wasted. Uh, a wonderful, ma- a true master pastry chef, Gunter Highland, who had Desserts International in Pennsylvania supplying pastries up and down the East Coast, and the teacher of generations of other master pastry chefs, he, when he trimmed his cakes, he didn't throw away those scraps of cake. He dried them out and turned them into crumb and put them back into the cake batter. Nothing was ever wasted. So the last couple generations are used to, oh, it's the end of the loaf, I'll just get rid of it. Or it's, this is what's left over, I'll get rid of it. Is it notable to say that both of the people you are talking about came from Europe? Yes. One of the guests on this show, multiple times, also a a host himself on Heritage Radio, Mitchell Davis, who's at the James Beard Foundation Mm -hmm. and also led the USA Pavilion at the Expo in Milan a few years ago. Mm -hmm. They were talking with a group of people about putting on an event and, of course, the American contingent and many of the chefs are very focused and interested in talking about using food waste. Mm -hmm. And around the discussion, just about everybody who was European sort of didn't understand the allure of it because they said, yeah, that's just cooking. Yeah. We've been doing that forever. 
So <laughs> it's an interesting point that maybe, you know, some of this upcycling, recycling technology and idea and entrepreneurship and new business is certainly great that it's happening at this scale. But that, it's an interesting philosophy that maybe, to your point, America had forgotten. That's the point. It's the scale now. Mm-hmm. Because we're starting to notice the waste because of the scale. Because 1. there's so much. 1.3 billion tons annually. Yes. That's a lot of food. That is. It's a huge amount of food. And if you can use it, why? It's a wonderful thing to do. And like I said, with flowers... You were saying, oh, everything has to be fresh, but one of the hotter things now is toasted flour and pasta. You know, you're looking for something that tastes a little bit different. If you can add an aged flavor without adding a chemical, but with the actual product, why not do that? That's such a great point that you bring up. I had not thought about that at all in terms of the rise flour that it has an aged quality to it Mm. and a greater depth of flavor i know of course that it does have flavor to it because it's it's been taken from the beer and the brewing Mm. process and that has lots of Mm. flavor happening but i didn't really think about it in terms of maturity and that there is a different flavor profile and a different value point when you talk about a mature ingredient along its life cycle. It has a life experience that mm-hmm. it's sharing with you as a flavor <laughs> profile, and that's a wonderful thing. My flower has life experience <laughs> it's sharing with me. That's a great thought also with the current trend with the pastas. Something like this could be a great add-in to pastas and things just as a flavor enhancer mm-hmm. or texturally. Or yes. What did you think of it it's itself? It's, again, it doesn't have, it's more of a flavor component as far as I was looking at it than a flower. Um, The word flower, you know, really means a finely ground meal, you know, so there's mustard flour, but it's not what everyone thinks of as flour. It's ground mustard seeds. So So when you say flour, the definition that you just shared, that is just simply the description of a product at the end of a specific process. Yes. Something being finely ground into a powder. Mm. That doesn't that definition doesn't say anything about what ingredient the product is. Exactly. So we call corn flour corn starch here in the United States, but you can also have corn meal. So meal used to mean something uh, of a coarser grind than flour. Flour just meant the finest ground. Of anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So So, powder. Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. But now it basically means wheat. That's what everyone is used to here. (laughs) And again, it's because of the abundance of this wonderful country, too. So wheat flour used to be fairly... It was one of many flours. You know, you had wheat, you had buckwheat, which is not related to wheat. You had rye, you had other flours, and you could have um, corn flour, you know, etc. There's, you know, and now we have amaranth flour, and we have sorghum flour, and we have millet flour, and there's so many other flours available, and they all have different properties and different um, 
uses. So it's nice to see this recycling of this. Upcycling. Upcycling, excuse me. Upcycling is when you I'm give sorry. it a new value. <laughs> recycling is when you... Yeah, well, you're still using it. Okay, I'm too old. Yeah. I'm too old That's for okay. some of these this words. Is all these, this is all the au courant definitions. Yeah, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with using something again. And that's oh, I something, think it's fantastic. And that's something that we have lost an appreciation for. Or, excuse me, now we're getting into the um, uses of words, is that it became bad to use that, to say that you were recycling something. It's, there's something negative about that. I think at one point, the, the measure of success oftentimes was sort of the bounty that you had. Exactly. You do things the best that you can. If you have these things as a result of it and you just sort of put them by the wayside and mm. success was being... Uh, having a, a bounty and, and having so much of everything. And now I think we place a greater value or an increasing value on being smart and efficient mm -hmm. and effective and reusing or using everything over and over again creates an efficiency, which is economic mm -hmm. in a financial sense. It's economic in a planetary or product sense or people sense. So I think it's a little bit also of a shift of, of value mm -hmm. of, you know, success at one point having been just having everything you could want and the excess. And then now, you know, sort of success and goals of what we're going for is well, something that's much more efficient. And and the up use of the rice flour, which is nice, is that, yes, a lot of this ended up going into landfills now, but it was also used as animal feed. So you're taking it out of that cycle you're keeping it as a plant-based food rather than turning it with further energy into more meat that maybe the plant planet doesn't need. There's a little bit of a debate happening about that right now. I read in my news feed, I think just yesterday morning, that there's some rebuttal to the recent article that was published about you know recommending that everybody start to eat less animal product mm. for the planet. Mm. And then I think the headline was, we know this is great for the planet, but is it good for you? So there's going to be point-counterpoint coming. No, that, that, that's understandable. But what I, at this point right now in the United States, it seems that we may be overproducing and pushing the animal product when we could be balancing it out with more plant-based food. Or distributing it to a perhaps broader exactly. broader population. Exactly. So to recap, because we are unfortunately out of time, and Chris and I could sit here and talk about baking and, and world cooking cuisine and international food philosophies until next week without a problem. <laughs> so your final thoughts on the rise upcycled barley flour. I thought it was wonderful. Were you surprised by it at all? Was it what you expected? I didn't know what to expect. It, okay. It was wonderful. I, it, because, it, again, it has a, a flavor history to it that adds a nice point. The mature ingredient yes. is sharing with <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. You made the brownie recipe that comes with mm -hmm. the package. What would you try next using it? Well, I, I also... Um, I didn't say this. I didn't, wasn't able to. I was able to put it into some of the... Um, Sable dough. And it changed the smell, of course. It changed mm. the flavor. It was nice. 
You did, know. It, did it help in that crumbly texture that sable is supposed to have? Yes. Oh, I, well, it made it a little bit drier. Mm-hmm. So, um, but then I was I was adding it at the end of the process. So, um, I will be playing with that a little bit more. Uh, I like the winter is the perfect time for these heavier flavors too. So, and the faba butter. Was it what you expected? No. Surprise? No. No, I, I was surprised. In what when sense? It, well, when I first got it, I got it on dry ice, so it was very hard, and it stayed hard in the refrigerator. And I thought I was going to be uh, unpleasantly surprised in its baking. Uh, again, I don't know the process used to make it, but whatever they did, they did something very good. So it bakes well. Excellent. It bakes very well. So listeners, if you are interested in trying any of these things or learning more about them, episode 153 of Tech Bites, we had founder Bertha Jimenez of Rise. You can find them online, riseproducts.com. If you're interested in faba butter, you can find it at forafoods, F-O-R-A-F-O-O-D-S.com. And we had the CEO and CFO co-founders on episode 151. Again, if you want to follow Chris Broberg, he is at CW Broberg on Instagram. I want to thank you for spending time with us today on Tech Bites. Tech Bites is every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Our engineer is Jeet Paul. Our theme music is by DJ Uptown Nico, the Nomada CPU track. Heritage Radio is a 501c3 nonprofit. We exist entirely out of the generosity of our underwriters' grants and members who are listeners like you. Thank you so much, and come back and see us again. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage heritage radio network. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.